if you want better outcomes, the thing to focus on is building better habits. The results of success are widely discussed and highly visible, and the process of success is often invisible. We tend to overvalue outcomes and we undervalue the process. I think the shift is... Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So many of us love coffee, like the living for it type of love. Some like it hot, some like it iced with a splash of creamer, and some like it with a cold foam topping. Many of us stop into coffee shops on our way to work more often than we'd like to admit. But now, thanks to International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, you can make cold foam coffee at home, or in my team's case, in the office, and it's a game changer. I was just chatting with a teammate of mine about our love for the occasional sweet treat coffee. Sometimes, it's just the thing you need as a pick-me-up on a busy day and we just stocked our office fridge with international delight cold foam creamer and it never misses the team's favorite flavor so far is the caramel macchiato you just shake the canister and spray it into your coffee and voila you've got an incredible cold foam coffee no frothing fancy machines or mess required international delight cold foam creamer foams and creams your coffee from top to bottom the best part it works on both hot and iced coffee it comes in three foaming delicious flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato. So you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome to this special masterclass. We've brought some of the top experts in the world to help you unlock the power of your life through this specific theme today. It's gonna to be powerful, so let's go ahead and dive in. If people are listening to this, watching this, thinking about how they can transform their lives and, and, and better their lives, what's something over the next seven days that they should be thinking about with their habits to, to make this happen? Yeah, great question. I don't even think it needs to be seven days. I think it'd be five minutes. You know, like you can do a lot with five good minutes, like five good minutes of exercise will reset your mood. Five good minutes of writing will make you feel totally different about your manuscript. It's like now the project's moving forward. Five good minutes of conversation will restore the relationship and, you know, get people back on, on track. So five good minutes can do a lot. 
And I think you can scale it down that small and just ask yourself, you know, how can I live five good minutes? You know, how can I, like in a sense, each day is a small lifetime and how can you live a good life today? That's really all you got to focus on is can I have a good day today? And then you can wake up again tomorrow and do the same thing. And this idea of getting 1% better each day, it's really encouraging a focus on trajectory rather than position. You know, there's so much discussion about position in life. We have all these different ways of measuring our current position. Like what's the number on the scale? How much money's in the bank account? What's the current stock price? We have all these different ways of analyzing what our current position is. And then usually when we get that number, whatever it is, there's kind of some sort of judgment that happens. You know, it's, oh, I'm not where I said I wanted to be yet, or we haven't achieved what we said we wanted to achieve. And what I'm encouraging is to say, listen, measurement's fine. It can be useful, but mm -hmm. just for a minute, let's set that to the side and stop worrying so much about our current position and focus a little bit more on our current trajectory. You know, is the arrow pointed up and to the right or have we flatlined? You know, are we getting 1% better or 1% worse? Because if you're on a good trajectory, even if it's just for the next five minutes, you know, then you're on the path where all you need is time. Like time will magnify whatever you feed it. You know, if you have good habits, time becomes your ally and that trajectory will carry you forward. And if you have bad habits, time becomes your enemy. And every day that goes by, you kind of dig the hole a little bit deeper. And so getting 1% better each day, it's really a mindset. It's an approach. It's less about measuring it. Oh, is it 1% or 1.6% or whatever? Like, it's not about getting caught up in the numbers. It's about trying to focus on putting yourself on a good path and then letting those days stack up. Love that approach and that mindset. I'm curious, in your opinion, why do you think so many people have the habit of being hard on themselves, even when they're improving and seeing the metrics go up on whatever they're measuring? I mean, it can probably be many different things. And I, you know, I don't know all the answers. I think one thing that's common is that the results of success are widely discussed and highly visible. And the process of success is often invisible and hidden from view. You know, like you'll never see a news story that's like man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. You know, it's, <laughs> it's only a story once it's like man loses 100 pounds. You know, it's only once yeah, it's a yeah. result that people talk about it or like there's never going to be a story about James writes 500 words today. You know, it's like only a story once Atomic Habits is a bestseller. And so because the results are the thing that gets discussed so much, and it's not, by the way, it's not that results don't matter. Like I, I consider myself pretty results oriented. It's just that I think we tend to overvalue outcomes because it's all we ever talk about. And we undervalue the process because it's just not, it's not compelling to talk about what's going on on a daily basis. So because of all that, I think it can get easy to judge yourself. You know, you could be doing the right thing on any given day. Like I could sit down and I could write 500 words and that's actually a really good day, you know, but if the manuscript's still a mess and I'm still a year and a half away from the book coming out and I'm seeing somebody else launch a bestseller this week, then it's, you start to judge yourself and feel like, oh, they have what I want to have, or I'm not there yet, or this is still a mess. I've been working on it for months. Like this is never going to get finished. It's very easy to fall into that kind of mindset. And especially if you're focused on results. So I think the shift is partially, it just helps to know that working on habits day in and day out, focusing on building a better process and building a better system is how results occur. And that is very obvious to all of us as soon as you say it, but man, it's so easy to forget it on a daily basis. And so reminding yourself that most of your results in life are a lagging measure of the habits that precede them. So 
Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your physical fitness is the lagging measure of your exercise habits. Your uh, even like silly stuff like the amount of clutter in your living room is the lagging measure of your cleaning habits. So many areas of life are largely, maybe not exclusively, but largely influenced by the habits that precede them. And so if you want better outcomes, the thing to focus on is building better habits. And um, for some reason, we get into this mindset where we're focused on results and we naturally start to compare. And uh, that leads to feelings of judgment, resentment, and negativity and so on. And uh, if we can just shift it a little bit and just try to focus on having five good minutes or living a good day or building better habits, then I think maybe you pull yourself back in the present moment. You focus a little bit more on running your own race and uh, maybe a little bit less on what everybody else is doing. Mm, love that, man. Focus on your own race. You know, over 10 million copies sold of Atomic Habits. Uh, you know, if there is anyone who hasn't got this yet, you guys got to make sure you get this. But I'm curious for those who haven't got it yet and don't know, how long does it take to form a habit? There seems like there's all this different research. This university says this and this scientific study says this. How long does it take to actually form a habit? And is it dependent on what habit you're trying to create? And are there also also are there different stages of building and forming a habit? Hmm. That's interesting. The stages part's interesting. People don't usually ask that. Um, okay, so very popular question. How long does it take to build a habit? Um, it does depend on the habit you're building. So there are a variety of studies that show, you know, if you pick an easy habit, um, you know, it might only take a couple of weeks. If you pick something really difficult, maybe it takes six or seven or eight months. Like, you know, who knows? But it also depends, like the same habit can take very different amounts of time depending on the context. Imagine one person who's trying to build the habit of doing yoga every day and they live with a bunch of athletes or people who go to yoga studios or whatever. And then the other person is trying to build a habit of doing yoga every day and uh, they live with nobody who works out and they kind of get criticized or poked fun at if they do it in front of them. Well, same habit, but very different situations. And so the environment's going to influence how much friction you're feeling associated with that. And obviously that will influence how easy or difficult it is. So I don't really know that the timing tells you anything. You know, there's all these kind of popular myths, 21 days or 30 days or whatever, and there's not really anything to back that up. But there's also a couple studies that say on average, it's like 66 days or something like that. But again, the range can be quite wide uh, depending on the habit. So I think the true answer, the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because if it stops, if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit, you know, like, mm -hmm. and what I'm trying to get at with that is habits are not a finish line to be crossed. You know, they're a lifestyle to be lived. It's something to integrate into your new normal. It's not like, hey, let me just do this for 30 days or 66 days and then I'll be a healthy person or then I'll be productive or whatever. You know, I won't have to think about it anymore. It's like, no, like what we're looking for is a change that you can integrate into your new normal, something you can make part of your lifestyle. And then once it's part of your daily life, great, you can start to look at the next habit and try to integrate that one. And it's a, it's kind of this endless process. And maybe that encourages you a little bit more to look for a non-threatening change or a sustainable change rather than just trying to flip a switch. Yeah. And it also sounds like a habit is only a habit and correct me if I'm wrong, if it becomes and is your identity on a consistent basis. And if it's not your identity, then and you're not then you're not doing it if it's not your identity. 
I don't think most researchers would define it that way, but it speaks to this question you asked about stages. And that that was kind of the first thing that I thought about uh, when you mentioned that question. So like, let's say, for example, let's just take like a classic habit, like going to the gym and working out. So early on, going to the gym is kind of uncomfortable. You know, you're worried about like, are people judging me? Do I look stupid? I don't know what exercises to do. Um, you know, like I don't know where to put my stuff. Do they have a water fountain at this gym or do I need to bring a water bottle? There's like all these like stupid little questions that you're thinking about when you're getting started. And it's definitely not part of your identity. You haven't shown up enough to be comfortable there and feel like, Hey, this is just part of who I am. And so early on the kind of the first stage when you're practicing it, I think the number one thing you need to do is scale it down, reduce the scope and try to make it as easy and as frictionless as possible to show up each day. So that's probably like stage one is how do I and make it's this the opposite of what people try to do when they're like, I'm out of shape. I'm going to go every day for the next year and I'm not going to miss a day and I'm going to eat chicken and salad every day. Well, and, and you know, what's interesting is especially for ambitious people, it's really interesting or really easy to fall into that pitfall because when you sit down and you think about the changes you want to make, yeah, it's easy to get excited about that. I think implicitly you kind of, even though people don't say it, what the thing that's kind of in the back of their mind is what can I achieve on my best day? Like, how can I get to peak performance, you know? And instead, I almost think it's more useful to ask yourself, what can I achieve even on the worst days? Like what, what habit could I stick to even on the bad days? Because then if you start there, now you can start to build some momentum. You can show up consistently. You can establish the habit. So that's maybe the first stage is scale it down. The second stage is you start to get some like other rewards associated with it. So you've been going to the gym for a few months and then maybe you start to see a little bit of a change in your body, or maybe you start to develop some friendships there and you look forward to seeing your new buddy there and you guys fist bump and you chat a little bit. And it's just like kind of more engaging and fun to do it, uh, to go there and, you know, work out. And so these are like other benefits, things that make the habit feel good and they kind of help you show up uh, more and more. So you're starting to get these external benefits that are coming along the way. And then ultimately the, the, maybe the final stage or a later stage is now it feels like it's kind of part of my identity. I go like, this is where I would say, so I've been working out for a while now and it's probably like the habit that I, I care most about, like my, in terms of personal habits, it's the one that feels like it centers me or it's the only time I really get for myself. And so I want to work out now. Yes, of course, I want the benefits of it and the, you know, the physical changes and all that stuff. But what I really want is I just feel good when I do it. You know, I feel like I'm being me. I'm being the kind of person I want to be. And it makes me feel like, yeah, this is the identity I want to have this is the kind of person I want to be. And so I can get that satisfaction instantly like as soon as long as i'm doing one rep i you know i get that feeling and so um that's a reward that comes maybe later you got to show up a lot before you get to that place mentally but i think ultimately that's where you're trying to get to now there is there is maybe one more stage after that which is the tighter that you cling to your current identity the harder it becomes to grow beyond it and so this is kind of an endless process, you know, like you, we all can sort of think about like, uh, let's say you have a surgeon who they've been doing an operation a certain way for the last 20 years, and they have a bunch of successful patients and cases from that operation. And they just are like, yeah, and you know what? I know it works well this way. And, this and how then we do a things, new technology, it's been this way. Yeah. yeah, a new technology comes along. And, uh, they're like, you know, Hey, you can do this with robots now, or you can do it laparoscopically or whatever. And they resist it. Cause they're like, no, I have a lot of evidence for doing it my old way. They cling to that current identity and it's harder to grow. 
And five years from now, they find themselves behind the curve. Or you've got a teacher who they've been doing their lesson plan the same way for the last 10 years, and they don't want to integrate YouTube or some new learning modality or whatever. And five years from now, they find themselves behind the curve. And so the tighter you cling to your current identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. And it's kind of this endless cycle. In the, in the early stages, what you want is to foster the identity, to like reinforce being that kind of person because it helps you show up. But then eventually, a couple of years from now, the world changes and you need to adapt. And so it's kind of like evolve or die. Um, and you need to continually be retouching or optimizing or refining that identity and your approach. Um, and so that's those are there are some various stages there, but those are kind of some of the big ones that I that stuck out to me. Yeah. And it's like people who are stuck to whatever fax machines. And then it's, you know, then it, from faxing to email and then email to, you know, cell phones and whatever it is, it's like our grandparents don't keep up with the technology and then we can't call them on FaceTime because they don't know how to turn it on or whatever. So that's interesting. There, it sounds like there's different stages to these habits. And it sounds like when you become successful, the habits that got you here may not necessarily get you to the next stage or season of accomplishment, fulfillment, success, health. Is that right? Yeah. It's interesting because I would say there's kind of like two categories. There are habits that are like timeless that you, the and we call those the fundamentals of whatever your domain is, you know, like in my case, reading and writing are probably always going to be habits that will serve me as an author, you know, but then there's other stuff, you know, the way that uh, I executed the book launch for atomic habits, you know what, like if I launch another book in 10 years, a lot of those strategies will probably be outdated. And so you need to upgrade and improve. You need to evolve and uh, change. And so there's, there's both the fundamentals that you always need to stick to. And there's just this uh, continual growth and, uh, and learning process that you also have to be committed to. A habit must be established before it can be improved. Right? If you don't establish the habit, there's nothing to optimize. If you're not showing up at the gym every day, you don't even, who cares about what workout you're doing? You're not even there. Don't start running an hour a day if you've never run in a long time. Be the person who shows up and puts their running shoes on every day before you worry about how far you're running, what kind of workout you're doing, and all that type of stuff. Um, so a lot of times, the, the art of showing up first before going all in on the desired goal you want. I think that's right. I mean, you can find examples of people who flip a switch and transform their lives or have an epiphany and do it overnight. That's but I really think that it's rare. Yeah. Um, I think that the more sustainable strategy, the more reliable strategy is to scale it down to the first two minutes, focus on that, establish it, master the art of showing up, and then mm -hmm. go from there. So really you should like, usually when people think about building better habits, they optimize for the finish line, right? It's like, how much weight do I need to lose? How much money do I need to make? Um, you know, how, when can I finish this book? It's all focused on the result. But I think instead, if you optimize for the starting line, make it as easy as possible to start, scale it down, uh, organize your environment so all that stuff is set up. This is another strategy for making it easy, which is that you can prime your environment to make the future action easier, right? Like if you chop up a bunch of vegetables and fruit on Sunday, it's now easier to have a healthy snack during the week. If you set your workout clothes out the night before, it's now easier to get into the workout the next day. But doing all that stuff to make it easy to show up that is probably the more important piece early on. There's also like all these, there are all these logistical details for building a habit that nobody thinks about in the beginning. Like what? Well, like uh, take the example of uh, my reader who went to the gym. There, it's like, okay, what gym are you going to go to? How are you going right. to get there? Right. Are you going by yourself or are you going to go with a friend? Do you need to... What time are you going to go? Yeah, what time are you going to Are you going to have your own water bottle or is there a water fountain at the gym? Mm -hmm. And that stuff sounds like silly and small, 
but when someone's starting, space, right? yeah. the fact that like, oh, the gym doesn't have a water fountain and I always forget to bring my own, that's enough friction for someone to quit. Um, so by focusing on just the first two minutes, you figure all that stuff out. And then once you've got that piece mastered, now you can worry about how long the workout is and what program to right. do and all that stuff. So figuring out the logistics first is an important step. I think that's something that just comes naturally with scaling a habit down. Yeah. You, f- you figure it's out easier. what's required to show up because you're not worried about the result or the outcome or how long you worked out or judging yourself for mm-hmm. you know for running 30 minutes when you should have run 45 or whatever. Got it. Okay. So this is the response still? Right. Okay. And what's the fourth? The fourth one, and this is crucial for getting a habit to stick, is the reward or the outcome. So every behavior is followed by some kind of outcome. This is just basic cause and effect. Um, And if the immediate outcome is favorable, is enjoyable, you have a reason to repeat it in the future. It's kind of like... Donuts. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like that example. If you... you, if you feel good, if you feel satisfied right after you do something, then it's like this positive emotional signal. And it's like, yeah, I should do this again. Yeah. So you can see this actually business is a really interesting example with this. There are a lot of products and some of the most successful products have some type of immediate satisfaction that is layered into them. So uh, toothpaste is a very common example. There's no reason a toothpaste needs to taste like mint. But it does because the minty flavor and the refreshingness of it, it makes your, it gives your mouth this clean feel. Mm-hmm. It's more satisfying, so you have a reason to do it again in the future. Um, I heard an interesting one recently about car manufacturers that some of them are adding a fake guttural roar to the, the car or the truck when you press the accelerator because it just adds to the actual natural sound of the engine, so it makes it more satisfying to mm. step on the gas and to drive the car. So there are a variety of examples like this, but if you can add, an, the key is it needs to be immediate. Right. Mm. So like this is um, in the book, I refer to this as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated. Behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. And it's really about the speed of how quickly you feel successful. If it feels good, you have a reason to do it again. Um, Is that why video games do so well? Video games are masters at this. They're masters at it. So um, they're masters actually at a variety of, of aspects related to habit formation. So one is they're really good at this immediate satisfaction. There are all kinds of things. You're actually constantly getting feedback in a video game. I Even if you're just I, running, yeah. you hear the pitter patter of the steps. It's that's gratifying. It's yeah. The jingles of like picking up another power up or um, you know, seeing a kill or something like that. Whatever the game is, you're always getting constant feedback. Sound, uh, things that are on screen. They're really good at dripping out. Watching the the score increase in the top corner, that is immediate feedback. Um, so they they have all these different ways of making you feel satisfied. And when you see that progress, you have a reason to continue in the future. This is one of the one of the most effective forms of immediate satisfaction is progress. Mm. As soon as you feel progress, you have a reason to continue. It feels really good to see that you're making headway. My career not only requires me to travel, but also gives me the freedom to. Traveling has brought me so many positive experiences and memories. Like that time I spent the holidays at an Airbnb in Big Bear with some of my extended family, and it was the perfect way to come together and connect with my family that I don't see that often. If you have a similar setup that allows you to travel often, have you ever thought about your empty home while you're gone? More specifically, how you can make some extra money by keeping your home occupied while you're out of town. I'm a big advocate for setting up a side hustle to give 
give you an extra stream of income and Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start. Many people host on Airbnb, including some friends of mine, but there are some people out there who've never even realized their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you've got yourself an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Now, why do some people make all this progress? Let's say they lose the weight. Uh, they lose 100 pounds, but then they gain it back two years later. Yeah. They've got this progress. They achieve the desired goal, but then how come it didn't stick? It's a good question. I mean, it's a complicated thing, a hard thing, but um, I'll give a couple potential uh, reasons. So one is it comes back to the social norms that we mentioned before. Um, mm-hmm. There's a story that I tell in the book about uh, Vietnamese soldiers, um, well, American soldiers in, during the Vietnam War. Uh, so they were over in Vietnam and these two congressmen went over and found out that the heroin usage uh, among the troops was incredibly high. It was like, I think they first thought it was like 10 or 15%, but then they found out it was actually over 20. So, you know, one in five troops is addicted to heroin or trying heroin, using it while they're over there. And they were like, this is a huge problem. We need to figure this out. So they created this whole committee to investigate things or whatever. And eventually the war ends and the soldiers come back and they were shocked by is that, um, 90% of the soldiers that were addicted to heroin in Vietnam were not addicted when they returned. And the main reason, it makes so much sense, but it upended our understanding of addiction at the time. They completely changed the context, right? In, in Vietnam, they're, they're in a war yeah. zone. They're highly stressed. They're surrounded by other users. Heroin is present and easy to get. They come home. They're in a totally new environment. It's not a war zone anymore. They're not surrounded by other users. They don't really know where to get heroin, so they have to figure that out too. You layer all this stuff together, and suddenly it becomes much easier to not do that. Um, whereas previously, they thought, oh, it was an addiction. They were doing it for other reasons. Right. This same thing is true, um, but usually in the reverse. Right. Typically, you have an addict who gets hooked on a drug, goes into rehab. This is the equivalent of leaving your environment behind, not having any of those triggers. But then you send them home to the same place they got addicted in the first place, right? So now they're surrounded by all their old friends, all the same cues, and it becomes very hard to resist that. And I wonder if when people rebound from habits after they've achieved some level of success, whether it's losing weight or getting clean or whatever, if it's the return of the environment that causes a lot of that. Um, You think that's what it is? Well, I don't know if it's always that. I I don't think I could say it it is universally. But um, I think that it's definitely it definitely plays a role. I mean, because we're can, influenced by people's uh, pressure either way. Like you said, yes, peer pressure can either be positive or negative. Yeah, the communities we surround ourselves with, we rise to the community. Right. You know, if you're around vegans all day and there's only vegan food available, you're going to eat probably mostly vegan. Right. If that's what you want, or if you're trying to eat healthier, if you go back home and everyone's eating donuts all day, that temptation is going to be hard to say no to after months. You can do it for a little while, but it's just really hard to do it. So environment is a huge factor is what I'm hearing. I think both social and physical. We haven't talked that much about physical environment, but that's another key Mm. component. You know, so like um, I'll give you an example of a good habit and a bad habit. So 
For good habits, you want the physical environment to make it obvious and easy for you to do the behavior. You know, so like I um like have a pull-up bar in your room. Exactly. Like trying to do a hundred pull-ups a day, right? Like have it hanging over your door. As opposed to even if you had one, but it was in the closet. Because right. you just half the time you wouldn't or, remember to take it out. Or it's at the gym upstairs right. or down the street. No. Um, you know, I have a friend who he wanted to practice uh, guitar more. And so he left his guitar in the middle of his living room. And that was just so he'd walk past it a hundred times a day. Pick it up and it becomes play. much easier, right? Bad habits are the same way. Um, so, but in reverse, instead of making it obvious, you want to make it invisible. Um, you know, take like, which is just talking about video games. A lot of people feel like they watch too much, spend too much time watching TV or playing video games or watching a screen. But if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the television. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? Um, Turn it on. Yeah. So you can restructure that environment to make it less likely that you'll fall into that habit. And there are a variety of things you could do. You could take the remote control and put it inside like a drawer so you don't see it. You could put the television behind a wall unit or a cabinet so that it's less visible. But you could also increase the friction with the task. So you could like unplug your TV after each use and only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you can't like mindlessly pull up Netflix and just mm. find something. Um, or you could take the batteries out of the remote control so that it's an extra like five to 10 seconds to turn on. Maybe that's enough time to be like, do I really want to watch something right now? Right. I'm just doing this mindlessly. Yeah. Um, if you really wanted to be extreme. Don't have a TV. Yes. You could that's what get I did rid this. of the TV entirely or take it off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out when you really that's want big. to watch something. For four years when I lived in Columbus, I um, I removed the TV for four years. I didn't have a TV in my place because I was like, I want to earn money. Right. I want to build my business and I have nothing. So I need to work. I need to focus on this to build you know, the habit that I wanted for my business. Mm-hmm. And it was the best thing for me because I would spend hours just mindlessly watching. And now I was like, okay, if I want to watch something, I'm going to go to the sports bar and watch the game. I'm going to go to a friend's house and watch this specific thing. Or I'm going to go to the movies and take a break. Right. As opposed to three hours a day of TV. What's brilliant about that, and it's a really good example, is that we, I think about that a lot with phones as well. So every day I try to leave my phone in another room outside of my office, at least until lunch. Because then I get like a four-hour block of time in the morning yeah. where I can just work without any distraction. Right. Yeah, And um, it's funny how quickly you don't, like, if my phone was on me in the morning, I would check it like, you know, every five minutes or whatever. But when it's out of the room, I don't even find myself wanting to, I never walk up the stairs to go check it, even though it's only 30 right. seconds away. Wow. So it's, it's interesting how um, little we actually want to do these things, but we just do them all the time because they're obvious and easy. And I think the key is to invert that. Take the things that are the bad habits, the distractions, the procrastinations, the unproductive uses of time, and make them more invisible, reduce exposure, and less uh, less easy to do. And take the things that are good habits and make it the equivalent of having your phone on you all the time. Mm. Right? Make it right in front of you. Make it obvious. Make it easy. Make it um, yeah. you know frictionless. Yeah. If you're looking to write, have your do you write with your journal or your computer? I write on the computer. I write in Evernote. It's got to be faster. Yeah. <laughs> you have is. to transfer later yeah. and all these things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, if you were coaching someone who said, I have no clue what I'm supposed to do with my life. I'm, I'm lost. I have all these bad habits. I smoke. I drink. I eat donuts every day. Mm. I have no job. Um, my room is sloppy. And I'm just depressed. What would you say to them to get started with changing their life around 
in the form of better habits? Well, you just need to pick one thing, first of all. I think that uh, I just mentioned a few minutes ago, um, one of the most powerful forms of motivation is progress. So seeing some progress, I mean, it could be as simple as make your bed each day, right? Like, but just doing that, embodying the identity of someone who's getting better, who's making progress, just pick one thing mm-hmm. uh, and use that as, this is true. I mean, Lewis, this is something you've probably seen with a lot of people that you've talked to, but yep. habits are the foundation for mastery. So if you, you know, say, take a, take a sport like basketball, um, you need to be able to dribble with both hands without thinking before you can worry about what strategy you're running on offense or what kind of, you know, strategic play you're going to run or what your defensive scheme is or all this other stuff, right? Like you need to automate the fundamentals of the craft before you can worry about the next level of performance. Same thing is true for chess. You know, like you need to know how the chess pieces move automatically without thinking about it before you can get into, all right, what is my strategy going to do? And I'm going to do this and they're going to do that. And so I think this is true, not just at the peak levels of performance that you integrate these habits and use habits as the foundation for the next level of performance, but also true when you're getting started, just build one small thing, carve out a 1% change, a 1% improvement, and use that as a stepping stone to the next uh, Mm -hmm. level. What about self-control? Because what if we have this desire for something? Um, what's the other word for self-control? Willpower. Willpower, yeah. What about right? willpower? How much willpower do we have? So you hear this a lot. I mean, it's very common, especially in self-help, motivation, self-improvement. Yep. You need to be motivated. You have to have willpower. Grit and perseverance are huge and important. And it's not that those qualities are not important. It's just that the way to develop them is different than what most people think. So most people think I need willpower, so I should just try harder. There's an interesting body of research. I mentioned it in the book. I think it's in chapter seven on self-control and willpower, which is that the people who appear to have the greatest self-control actually are just tempted the least. Mm. So they face temptations less frequently and therefore have the reserves and the resources to resist it when it occasionally comes up. And I think that this is actually like the lever to pull or the pressure point to push on is that the way to get better willpower is to design an environment that tempts you less, not to say, let me just try harder. Right. Yeah. Set yourself up to win. And you have a a chapter that talks about the power of accountability partners. Hmm. I talk about accountability and coaches all the time. I hire coaches for everything because I use sports as my life, analogy for my life. And I know that I couldn't have gotten to where I wanted to be as an athlete without great coaches and accountability. Yep. So how important is accountability towards habits as well? Yeah, it's huge. So I recently hired a powerlifting coach. He's great. He's worked with like 12 world champions. And having Columbus him has, uh, he's not based in Columbus actually, but Columbus is great for strength culture. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, obviously there's the Arnold, but then Westside Barbell and a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it was awesome. Um, but your point about coaches is a crucial one, which is that um, having a coach forces you to be aware of things that you would otherwise overlook, right? Like as you... This is what I call the downside of building good habits, which is you build habits and in the beginning you develop fluency and skill and ability and things become easier. But after a little while, once a habit has been established, the downside of having a habit is that you can do it good enough on autopilot, which means that you start to overlook your mistakes Mm, and not think about how to get better. And so what you need is a coach to keep you on that razor's edge so that you, you keep building habits, but it also forces you to stay aware of what the next level of performance is. And that's kind of the challenge of continuous improvement. It's like a cycle. You know, it starts with awareness. If you're not aware of what your habits are or what your behavior is, you don't have a chance to change it. 
Then from that awareness, you go to deliberate practice where you have to effortfully try and work to get better. And eventually the thing that you were deliberately practicing becomes a habit and becomes automatic. But once it becomes automatic, that's not the end. You have to return to awareness and see where you're at now yeah. How and to get start to the, the cycle level, yeah. again. Huh. And what about, what if you can't afford a coach? How do you find the right accountability partner? That's where I think we come back to the social component that we talked yeah. about earlier. Just join the group, join the community. That's yeah. probably the best way to do it. And the great thing about the, you know, the internet and the web is that you can find those people Easily. before where yeah. you couldn't find them previously. You know, it used to be uh, that you had to hope that the people in your local community or on your sports team or at your, you know, uh, organization were also interested in the same things. And now you can find those people and find Anywhere. them online. Just search it. And what's the, uh, the downside of good habits? So this is what I, uh, what I was mentioning with this fact that like you start to overlook your mistakes. There's a, um, there's an interesting study that was done on surgeons where they found that early on huh. in residency, they were getting better. Uh, and then they continued to improve as they became a surgeon and practiced for a few years. And then they hit some kind of peak. And then their performance actually declined slightly because they stop overlooking their mistakes or stop looking for ways to get better. Um, and so you need to be on that on that edge of paying attention. My favorite example of this is actually a surgeon himself, Atul Gawande. And um, he hired a coach, a previous surgeon who was retiring, to review the video of his surgeries wow. and to tell him where he could improve and what he could do better. And um, I think that's a brilliant example of how to have a coach, even if you're not in sports or not, you know, not a competitor or something. Mm. We can all benefit from feedback. And the tighter the feedback cycle, the faster you learn. That's powerful. I love it, man. This is powerful stuff. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple final questions. Yeah, sure. This one's called the three truths. Uh, if you could only share three lessons with humanity in the world. And no one, they didn't have access to your writing or your blog or your books, but you only had three lessons you could share. What would those three lessons or three truths be? Yeah, uh, that's really tough. So the first one I would say is about reading. Uh, I mentioned earlier that reading is sort of like this meta habit that helps you solve all, all your other problems. So I guess my lesson for reading would be start more books. Uh, no, would be, yeah. Start more books, quit most of them, read the great ones twice. Mm. So if you start more books, you'll be exposed to more ideas. If you quit most of them, if you quit the ones that aren't relevant to you or aren't that good or just aren't a high quality bar, then you'll have the chance to start even more. And when you find the great ones, read them twice because the advice is incredible and it's potentially life-changing. Mm. Okay. All right. So the first one I would say is reading. Um, the second one is some kind of something to do with physical movement and strength training. Um, you cannot... Every human has a body and every human has like a physical presence. So learn to use your body in some way to be more alive and to experience what that's like to be human. If you just spend all day in your head or all day staring at the screen, you only kind of get half of what it means to be alive. Mm -hmm. So I would say physical strength is another one. And then the third one has to be something along the lines of community connection, um, serving others. I don't know what exactly that would be. Um, Personally, I have felt most engaged when I've been working on a shared mission with a group of people face to face, mm. which is interesting coming from someone who, you know, my business is built online, right? I spend most of my time sending emails to, you know, half a million people right. or whatever. But I think actually I find more satisfaction and more mm. uh, purpose in connecting with people face to face. Um, so maybe that would be it. Uh, talk to someone face to face every day. Well, that's cool. What are 
three to five non-negotiable habits that every human being should, and if they could do on a daily basis, it would improve their lives and everyone's life around them. What are those non-negotiable habits on a daily basis we should do? Yeah, three habits that would improve everybody's lives on a daily basis. It's so hard to give an answer like that because obviously everybody's you know dealing with different stuff. But there are a few things I think I do genuinely think most people would benefit from. So um, the easy answer would be, uh, or the easy way to frame this would be reading, but I don't think it actually has to be reading books. I think it just is the the habit of learning something new. So if you, you know, listening to podcasts, reading a book, watching a good YouTube video, whatever, it doesn't matter what version of that it is. But if you go to bed a little bit smarter than you were when you woke up, that's going to improve your life. And just having this thirst for lifelong learning, having an eagerness to uh, learn or discover something new each day, it's going to pay off in a huge way in the long run, no matter what topics you're interested in. So a habit of some small habit of daily learning, let's just call it learn something new for 10 minutes each day. Um, some to- sort of physical activity, uh, you know, this is, I think, an important um, realization about all habits, which is in most areas of life, there might not be a thousand ways to do something, but there's almost always more than one way. And, you know, I like working out in the gym, but not everybody wants to train like a bodybuilder and that's fine. You know, like you can kayak or go running or rock climbing or ride a bike or whatever. There's like a bazillion ways to live an active lifestyle and you should choose the version of your habits that is most exciting to you. Like in a, in a way, that's the first biggest hurdle to clear when you're building habits is have you selected a habit that you're genuinely interested in, that you're actually engaged with? Because if it's something that you actually care about, there are going to be like endless opportunities for improvement. If you're not actually care, if you don't actually care about it, if you're just doing it because you kind of feel like society is encouraging you to do it, or your parents want you to do it, or your peers are kind of subtly saying, hey, this is something you should do then even the obvious improvements are going to feel like a chore, you know? So let's call it uh, 10 minutes of learning something new, uh, some sort of physical activity, whatever is exciting or interesting to you. And then I think the other one is uh, a process, a habit of reflection and review. So it's very easy in life to be so busy or working on stuff heads down um, or just have the next task come up, whether it's things you got to do for your kids or responsibilities at work that you never take even five minutes to step back and just breathe and ask yourself, am I working on the right thing? You know, am I directing my attention and energy to the highest and best use? And boy, there is nothing so wasteful as working hard on the wrong thing. You know, like so many people work really hard, but are you directing your energy and attention to the best spot? And so um, the only way to discover that, like, I know I'm not smart enough to figure it out on the first time. Like, I can't, I can't just sit down, give me five minutes and be like, oh, this is exactly what I should be focused on. It takes iteration. It takes refinement. It takes a process of reflecting and reviewing and looking back on the previous day and be like, hey, was that a good way to spend my time? Like, did I live a good life today? And the more that you do that, the more you start to course correct. And the other tricky thing, and the reason this needs to be a habit that you revisit consistently, I don't necessarily think it needs to be daily, but consistently is the answer changes over time. You know, like what you want shifts over time, the situation you're in or the resources you have, or the time you have shifts over time. 
And so you need to keep coming back to this. Maybe it's every week, maybe it's once a year, but whatever it is, you need a chance to reflect and review and to try to ask yourself, is there a better way to do this? Am I working on the right thing? Am I working on what actually matters? Um, am I directing my attention and energy in the highest and best mm -hmm. way? Yeah. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. And how, how important is accountability then in your mind when we are taking on these new habits for ourselves? Is it important to have self-accountability, buddy accountability, coach accountability, you know, social accountability? Uh, do those support habits, uh, forming these consistent habits? And what other factors are in play there? They definitely support them um, or, or hinder them potentially, depending on the, the people you're around and the, you know, the group that you're part of. Ultimately, the form of accountability that matters the most is self-accountability. It's almost impossible to exceed the standards that you have for yourself. Like that almost always sets the baseline. You know, if your, your beliefs or your standards are almost always going to be the limit on what you allow yourself to do or what you accept. Now, it's easier to stick to high standards in a supportive environment than it is in a, uh, an unsupportive one. So there are a lot of things that can influence whether you want to maintain that standard, but ultimately the standard you hold yourself to is going to be the most important thing. Now, having said that, I do think that the social environment, the tribes that you belong to influence your habits in a really dramatic way. So if I had to pick one topic that I think is even more important now than I realized when I was writing the book. I would probably say the social environment. You know, we're all part of multiple tribes. Some of those tribes are like really large, like what it means to be American or what it means to be Australian. Some of those tribes are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of the local CrossFit gym. But all of those tribes, large and small, they have a set of expectations. You know, they have a set of social norms. They have a set of beliefs that, hey, this is how you act in this group. This is what's normal and expected. And the more that your habits align with the expectations of the group, the easier it is to stick with them, the more like appealing and attractive they are because they signal to the people around you, hey, look, I belong too. you know, like I'm part of this. And the more that they go against the grain of the tribes that you belong to, the harder they are to stick to because you start to get criticized for them. And if people have to choose between, you know what, I have habits that I don't really love, but I fit in, I belong, I'm part of something. Or I have the habits that I want to have, but I'm cast out, I'm ostracized, I'm criticized. I mean, the desire to belong will often overpower the desire to improve. You know, belonging will, will the loneliness will lose to belonging. And so you need to get those two things aligned and join groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. It is so true. And it doesn't mean you can't make it happen. There's a great example that, that came up this week. Someone on my team on our team call said, uh, I asked, I asked everyone on the call, I said, what is one thing you want to let go of next year for your life? Like what's one thing that's not serving you right now that you want to let go of? And this person said, I want to let go of drinking, drinking alcohol. 
like, or at least drinking as frequently as I do with the social circles that I'm in. And um, I thought that was interesting because I've never been drunk in my life. I don't drink. It's not, it's not a part of my identity, right? I never did it from sports. And then in, after sports, I was just like, why? It didn't make sense to me. Nothing good or bad about it. It just wasn't fitting my values personally. I have other problems, which is sugar, right? It's like I've got that. That's my vice, right? So uh, no judgment here. But I was just like, this never stopped for me, you know, in every until maybe in the last four or five years. Where anytime I'd go out in college, after college, then in the business world, restaurants, networking events, like all that stuff, people would always try to influence me to drinking. And so I had to be I, I had to be so firm in my beliefs and really just not even care at all about it. That I just knew that people were going to try to influence me. They would try to say a joke. They'd be, I can't believe you never drank, all these different things. Try to get me to drink for the first time, all this stuff. I knew it would happen every single week. And I just realized, okay, this is going to happen no matter what type of circles I'm in, unless I find people that do not drink, which is very rare. And which is one of the reasons why with my girlfriend, when we started dating, I was like, listen, it's not going to work. If you like to drink, I don't think I can date you. Like, doesn't mean you're a bad person. I just don't want to be in that environment for the rest of my life uh, with the person I'm choosing to be with. And so I had to make a conscious decision. And she was like, well, it, I don't really need it. Like, maybe I drink a glass of wine once a month. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But if this is a weekly thing, like, it's just not going to work because I've chosen this to be a high priority of my value for my life. And um, it's it's very challenging if there's something you want to do and the people around you are influencing you the other way in terms of accountability. So I think it's it doesn't mean you can't do it, but choosing to be around people or groups or tribes, like you mentioned, that are supportive, even if it's the local CrossFit gym or whatever it might be, find those communities as much as possible. You know, if your family isn't as supportive, find these other micro tribes to support you in that habit form. There's this whole chapter in Atomic Habits. Uh, it's called The Secret to Self-Control. And one of the surprising things that I came across when I was researching the book is a lot of these self-control studies, we typically will like kind of the standard story we all tell is, oh man, I wish I had the discipline of that person, or I wish I was, you know, as consistent as this professional athlete or whatever. But in fact, um, the people who exhibit the highest self-control are often the people who are tempted the least. That's like the predominant right. pattern that is common across those different contexts is that they Don't are put just cookies not in tempted. your house. You're not going to eat them. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, you want to stack the deck in your favor and design an environment or join groups and tribes where your desired behavior is normal, where your desired behavior is easy. And if you do that for yourself, Sure, you'll still have to put effort in, um, but it's going to be so much more productive and easy to stick to the habit because you're in a space and a context that's designed to support it. And that's maybe one of the biggest hacks or strategies for building better habits is worry a little bit less about having superhuman willpower and worry a little bit more about designing an environment where you don't need willpower at all. You did something really smart, which I think a lot of people aren't willing to do. You spent... 10 years writing every week in an incredible article or articles that were so detailed, so thought out, so researched. And you said, how can I serve the maximum number of people in my niche and then start branching out in the space as well and do it consistently over a decade? 
without really making a lot of money, you know, selling other things. And then you came out with a book. And now this doesn't happen for everyone, but you, then you came out with a book and it became, you know, a uh, one of the best-selling books of the year, or the most-selling book of last year on Amazon, like you said, top five, I think, this year as well. And it just continues to add value to people. And I think it's a testament to what you created for a decade plus of adding value. So congratulations on everything, man. Yeah, thank you. That's very, very nice of you to say. It's been a wild ride. I, there are a couple things going on there. Like I do try to operate with this core value of always give value before you ask for value. And if you think about in any business, but like in my business, writing books, the amount of... um what it costs a reader or what it costs a customer is not just how much they have to pay for the book. It's also how much time they have to spend reading it or finding it and so on. And whatever that total cost is time plus money, that's like the amount they have to pay. And then whatever I get paid um, is what I make, but what they get in return should be like well in excess of that. So like the value they get minus the time and money they spend, there's some surplus there. And we could call it whatever, but I like think about it as like goodwill. And I always want to have a surplus of goodwill. Um, and so everything that I create, whether it's an article or a newsletter or a, the book, I want people to be, to have this feeling that it's like, oh my gosh, I get so much out of this. Of course, I would want to open the next email, or of course, I would want to buy the book. It's like such an obvious win for me. So I always try to give value before I ask for value. And I don't think that there's any one way to do this. Like you could start with the book and not have an audience, for example. But the way that I did it is I wanted to focus on building the audience first, building the platform first, give as much value as possible, get the audience as large as possible. And then I was able, you know, I didn't have any credentials, right? Like I don't have any background for, and there was no reason for me to get a book deal. I was just a guy with a blog. Um, and the only reason that any of the publishers in New York met with me is because I spent that time building the email list and developing the audience. And then that got my foot in the door and got the book deal. And then of course you have to execute well on that and create something valuable. And then, you know, ultimately the book being a hit was sort of just all this potential energy that had been built up for two years or five years or whatever. And then it being released when, when the book came out. So I, in a large, to a large degree, I kind of think that's the hardest thing about writing books is all the mm -hmm. work is up front. You know, you have so to work. build the audience and write it and edit it and uh, make the marketing plan and start to record interviews and execute on that. You have to do all of that stuff before you sell a single copy. And most people are just not willing to delay gratification that long. You know, I mean, it's probably depending on how you measure it. Atomic Habits took somewhere between like three and six years. Um Definitely at least three years, because that's how long it was from when I got the book deal. But I was doing a lot before I even got the book deal. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just a long time to work on something without making a cent from it. <laughs> and so uh, if you're willing to do that, then you can get a great result. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's episode with all the important links. And I want to remind you if no one has told you lately that you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great.